Hard first, easy later. User experience assessment, also known as UXA. It's also known by user experience evaluation, UXE. Uh, I prefer UXA. I think it's the more standardized terminology as well. So I really want to talk about what I think the place for UXA is in 2020 as far as the software development lifecycle and also team structures and where it adds value or doesn't add value. And a lot of this has to do with the rise in user experience and how people are starting to see the value as far as customers that are building products and also companies that are building internal products are also seeing the value of user experience. Uh, and that and that is being more product-centered than, you know, when, especially when you're working on some of these internal projects that I've been a part of where, you know, the business is telling you, we don't care, it's internal, you know, there's they're just, you know, data scientists or whoever it is that's using the product and and it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be you know very it it doesn't have to be a desirable experience you know it doesn't have to be enjoyable or whatever and that's that's never the case you know because as soon as you start talking to the people who are using the product they never say the same thing they never agree with that Uh, they always have some kind of a small thing and and I think this is a common trend is that you'll have an assumption by the stakeholder or by the, uh, you know, the, the one who's, you know, paying for this development uh, or maybe the team behind it. So you, so you, you can have several different assumptions. You can have your stakeholders, your business, your org, whoever, that have their own assumptions of what they think the user is going to use this, this product for and how they're going to use it. And then also you have your development team or your design team as well that can have their own assumptions and their own visions for where things are going to play out. And the reality is that sometimes none of those are right and very often none of those are right. Uh, And you can look back on tons of startups that, you know, did that where they released a product and then they pivoted because they found out that nobody was using it for the thing that they made it for, but everybody was using it and they enjoyed the product. They just didn't look at it as the product that they thought it was. Um, but, and I don't, I don't have any great specific examples right now. So that's not something I can go deep on right now. But what I do want to talk more about is how does it fit into, you know, the development flow, especially if you're doing like agile methodology, you know, how does that fit in? Like, you know, you have your, you know, most commonly, or at least with, with teams that I've been on is you have your design and your experience at the inception and during like planning and right before planning. So usually that happens and then development planning starts after that is done. So all that legwork is usually already done. You know, those decisions have already been made and the UX or the design team or the business has already made a decision and said, okay, this is the product we want to build and this is how we want to build it and, and all that. And you have it, the intent behind it is communicated. You have knowledge transferred to your development team and then they begin you know, development on the product. And I think that works, but where it falls short is that as things grow, you 
you still need to have an open line of communication with especially your UX team or uh, as well with, you know, if you have dual role uh, people on the team, uh, you still need to have, uh, you know, communication with your users. Because (laughs) if you launch and then your users, you know, you can't judge the the product and you can't you you can't unilaterally make it I mean you can but I don't know that it would be very productive to just blindly say okay our users are up from last month so by that logic let's keep going in the direction that we're going and that may not be a good idea because it could be you know are, are you increasing users and if you are increasing users are they using all the features you know what if you keep you know you've got your development team working on all these features pushing them out every week and you think you're pushing the needle because your users are going up your engagement is going up but then you find out that nobody's using the new features and that there's like one or two small features that are eating up all the engagement and what and what happened was you got something right and then instead of finding out what you got right you just kept going with your own assumption and you went down some random path where there's no market for it and so that's where I think UX has to play you know more fluid role you know I I think it can't be a one-size-fits-all and I definitely think that as things scale up you have to think of you know when you layer features on top of each other and you introduce a new feature it's gonna affect the features underneath of it and so I know that can definitely bloat your process as far as you can all of a sudden go from you know your regression taking like one day even with automation your regression can go up to like a week or something and that and that can get ridiculous so you definitely have to have different stages and different classifications of regressions you can have like shallow regression uh, you can have, you know, deep regression. You can have whatever flavor you want to call it. <laughs> you can, you know, just do a regression on uh, maybe like your 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 top of funnel flows. So maybe you have like some products that you sell and those are the ones that matter. Like you have like your most popular flow or user journey, whatever you want to call it. And that's the one that you want to make sure you don't affect it. So you could constantly do regression on that on anything that changes. Anytime you ship new code, you do a full regression on that flow because it's your most top of funnel or your your game changer. Uh, it's the same thing for with uh, when, when maybe when you do a, a major release, you could do a full regression. So it wouldn't need to do every you wouldn't need to do it every iteration. Uh, but I definitely definitely think that it's something that the more feedback you can get from users and from stakeholders that are constantly going through this process and 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 finding out okay what are my assumptions previously what are my new assumptions and what is the reality you know of my perception of this product so the other thing I guess that we should probably break down a little bit is methodology and what are our metrics you know what is our our model so what I mean by that is how are we gonna rate our experience because it's a very abstract thing and so it's it's a very difficult thing to break down and it's definitely a lot of it is up to interpretation so you you want to be careful about what your testing pool size is, who's in your testing pool, you know, how do you 
you know, how do you curate that list? Uh, it's definitely not something you want to be stagnant. So you don't want to have the same testing pool over and over and over if you can help it. It doesn't mean that you have to have a big testing pool and you probably shouldn't use it as law, meaning that you definitely don't want to do a, you know, a UX audit uh, or UXA, whatever you want to call it. And you get your assessment back right before you ship some code and you get some negative feedback, but maybe it differs from the previous one and there wasn't really a feature overlap, but that testing pool just seemed to deviate and they had a lower usability score or a lower enjoyment score or whatever you have as your metrics and your model all of a sudden breaks because your testing pool is different than your previous one. You still have to have that margin for error. You have to allow for biased test cases. You have to allow for, maybe you have a specific ge geographic region or a specific classification of users. Maybe you have, uh, you know, kind of mom and pop, small business users completely uh, differ from your, you know, large corporate uh, enterprise level customers. Maybe your enterprise customers hate a specific feature. And maybe your small business loved this this specific feature, but then now it comes down to you know how many enterprise level customers do you have? What is the revenue for that? Is that your business model? Are you moving in a direction as an enterprise offering, or are you trying to be kind of the everyman small business offering? And that's the one you kind of have to listen to. But you also have to allow for maybe the small businesses that you got are not the same. Maybe there's some kind of variant. So you definitely have to kind of retest, especially if you're about to do a pivot. I think you have to allow for, you know, definitely a margin of error on a high level. You know, it's not something you want to read into too much, but it's something you want to have like an early warning sign kind of thing where you can tell your your designers or your UX team, your greater team, your business team, whoever the stakeholders are, Hey, I think we should look more in this area because I think whatever we just shipped or whatever we're about to ship may impact this experience. And, you know, whatever that could be, the top of funnel could affect sales or something like that. And then you can you can measure that when you have your model in place. So when you have metrics like, hey, you know, what was your overall enjoyment? Uh, what was your expectation of this, what did you expect to see? Why did you expect to see it? Maybe uh, what other services have you used? You know, don't 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 be, you know, held back by, you know, trying to get like one or two things out of this. You know, it's better to, you know, I, I think spend a little bit of time and and get to know who your customers are throughout the this cycle because if you kind of put your customer in a, in stone and you set them in stone and you're always aiming for that same customer and if you're building for the same customer this year that you were building for last year i think you're going to be in trouble you know i think i think that's true for any industry i think things are constantly changing and if you're not changing there is a shift in your market and you're not meeting that need and there's somebody else that's fulfilling that need so with that, let's say we have our model in place. How do we scale this? How do we add this to an existing team? Which is, you know, the big, the big problem right now that I'm trying to solve is economically, how do you pitch that? 
you know, how do you pitch that for value? And then how do you make it cost effective and how do you scale it at different levels? You know, maybe how do you have an entry level, you know, get your feet wet kind of thing, you know, kind of a medium level. And then, you know, they're all in kind of thing. But also the, the other thing is what if you're all in and you get diminishing returns or it bogs down development? So let's say it works really well entry level where you have, you know, you have a QA and you have a UX person and you take their allocation as far as their job requirements and you split the role and you say, okay, our UX person is going to spend 10% of their time training this QA person, building the model initially, and then kind of, you know, doing a review every time a cycle or an iteration goes through. And the QA person is going to be kind of the boots on the ground or whatever. And then maybe we'll take a salesperson and the salesperson is going to have like a 5% allocation and they will get in touch with you know, specific key customers that have been called out and get a point of contact from each one of them and then hand that off to our QA person or whoever's running lead for that cycle and do that audit and run it against that model. Uh, I definitely think that it can be done without customers, but I think that it'll be way more accurate even with just a few customers, even just one customer, because there's always going to be some kind of takeaway. There's always going to be some kind of insight that you're going to get that you didn't have before. And the other thing, too, is that you can treat this as kind of like a concierge uh, uh, pitch where you're essentially letting this customer be a VIP, where you're telling them, hey, we care so much about your business that we want to cater more to your specific custom needs. And they're going to be more honest with you. You know, they're going to they're going to tell you, hey, we really want this. We really wish we had a button here. That if we click this, it would send this over in a PDF format. And we don't understand why we can't get a PDF format because we have to do some special process on our on our end that converts it to a PDF. And it's, you know, a pain in the ass. And and you'd be surprised how many interactions there are just like that, where it's so simple of just supporting a different file type or tweaking some small process to where all of a sudden you've become that much more valuable. Um, and I, and I say that from seeing, you know, the, the process that can happen sometimes where you have managers and POs and stakeholders and, and executives that are just pushing work and they're pushing it down and they're thinking, man, we're getting so much stuff done, but they don't, they're just shooting blind darts. You know, they got, they got a blindfold on and they are just pulling the trigger. They have no idea what they're doing. And I think this kind of shines a light on are we doing what we need to be doing? Are we doing what we think we're doing? Are we getting a reaction that we want? And so the core thing about user experience uh, assessments are you're getting the perception of the user before they use the product, okay? And then you're also getting the user's kind of takeaway feelings, like they're, 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 like so so what is their expectation okay and then after they use the feature or while they're using the feature a lot of times you'll have kind of a UX person or or somebody kind of walk them through the process and kind of watch and take notes and see how things are going and this can be streamlined in in a number of different ways it doesn't have to be physically the person doesn't have to physically be there it can be all kinds of different things maybe you do a screencast and the UX person can time you give them a set flow where you tell them, hey, uh, we want you to sign up with your with your phone number. 
receive an SMS text message with your sign-in code. Use that code to sign in. Uh, favorite three, you know, items that we have once you sign in. Maybe it's a product company or something like that. Uh, favorite three things. Do 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 like two or three interactions. Very basic user flow kind of thing. And then time how long it takes them to get through the flow. So you might have a user that says, oh, I really enjoyed the app. It was so easy to use. It was so intuitive, blah, 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 all this, all this shit. And then when you look at their numbers, you're like, okay, well, they said it was very easy to use, but it actually took them 15 minutes to get through this basic flow. And then you look at other users and it took them three or four minutes and they say, well, you know, I'm a power user and I actually use a ton of apps that have the same login process. And this is actually the slowest one I've ever seen that has this login process. And that might hold more weight than the person who did 15 minutes to log in who's not a power user. And you still want to look at both because you want to look at how do we optimize for this person who's not a power user. Uh, but it's definitely value there as far as you're getting their expectations and then and and their expectations could be uh well we think that we're going to get a button that says text me my code uh we think we're going to get the text message with the code and then when we're going to type in our code we're going to have the option to just essentially pull it in from messages uh, i don't know what it looks like on android i haven't used it lately but on iOS, the keyboard, you usually just say, do you want to bring this in from, from messages? And it'll have like the, the code or something like that. So if you're using a non-standardized code format, then iOS may not intuitively pick up on that text code. And so they may not see it as a verification code, which means you wouldn't be able to have that same streamlined process. And that could be something as simple as instead of doing an alphanumeric code, just doing a pure numerical code. Um, I, I can't confirm that, that Apple... Uh, can't handle alphanumeric, but I know they do handle uh, numeric very well. So let's say you you've streamlined that process using that, and then now you can get a like summative evaluation where you can say, okay, after you've gone through this whole flow, so you get you get a formative evaluation on every single area of the flow, every interaction, every feature, or kind of micro interaction engagements, and then at the end after you've gotten that feedback and you go through QA, you can get some kind of summary back from that user that says, hey, uh, we think that this was enjoyable or we think that this wasn't enjoyable and we rated on this scale or whatever it is. And and I'm, I'm not even saying you, could, you can't use the same testers. I'm just thinking it would probably make more sense to vary your testers. Now, if you have, if your if your business is powered by like, you know, ten percent of your revenue is coming from one client, and it's like this giant enterprise company, maybe get a different user inside that company every time. You know, maybe say, hey, we we would like to have a different point of contact uh, every month, every week, every iteration, whatever it is, and that way you're still getting feedback from your breadwinners, your top of funnel, but you're you're getting a variant. You know, you're not. You're not allowing for like any kind of like spoiling of the testing pool, um, or at least hopefully you're not. You know, obviously there's always going to be a margin of error with that. But so I really think that is coming. I think that is already kind of here. I, I don't see a lot of chatter about that specific terminology and that process, but I think that is the process, or some flavor of that process is coming, and I think there's a lot of value in it. 
because it's closer to kind of the the startup mentality and less of the large corporate you know agile process where we don't question the agile work we don't question the backlog we don't question anything else we just execute and i think this backs that up and says okay now let's get an assumption before we build this out from the users okay or from some some level of stakeholder testing pool and then after we build it out, let's also get some feedback again, and then let's get a summary and find out if we executed on what we thought we executed on and if the user even wanted us to execute on it before we execute on it. So there has to be something like that. And I think it's never going to be 100% accurate, but if you start doing that, there's going to be some data points in there. And I'm sure some data scientist somewhere can build a model off of that. And that will be able to have some kind of predictability with it where you can say, okay, well, you know, this model's worked in the past for this and we can measure our sales to each feature, the roadmap, when code was released and how that affected sales and all that. And I think putting that kind of process in place, it, it's really going to bring a team to another level. And I think that that is a differentiator for 2020. And I think it's something that's coming. So that's, that's pretty much all I have for that. Uh, I will say that I have seen so many times where testing has worked. And as soon as we had user acceptance, which is a whole different thing other than UX, but a user acceptance is usually you just kind of have your internal team, maybe a few users, uh, maybe some high level enterprise or vendors will go through and kind of tinker with it. Just make sure nothing breaks. Sometimes you'll get feedback like, Hey, this, this button's slow. This menu doesn't open very quickly or this flickers or something like that, but you're not really going to get that hard hitting feedback from, you know, the stakeholders and you're not going to get a concise. So if you get one person who says the menu's slow, but you're not asking everybody, is the menu slow? Then you're going to run into a problem. So that's why it's better to have kind of this small testing pool, run through some kind of user stories, some user journeys, and say, hey, let's go through the features we just built, or let's go through the features that we're thinking about building, and let's see what our expectations are. Let's execute on this if it looks like we should, and we've made that decision. And then after we execute on it, let's figure out if we actually got the perception from the user that we wanted to get. Did we get our intention across? And how is the user responding to this after they've gone through this flow? So, and then after that, obviously, you want to get a summative evaluation from the user where they can tell you overall, did I enjoy this? Did I enjoy it more than I perceived it beforehand? Did I, did I think it was going to be better than it was? Did I think it was going to be worse than it, what it was? Did I think it was going to be faster than what it was? You know, all those different things because you have to compare their assumptions with the reality or the finished product. And I think, I think that's really important. And it's also very important if you can try to get the source of the assumption because sometimes you'll find out, well, I use this one app all the time and they have a red button in this one area. And so when I use your app, I think you're going to have a red button in that same area. And this is why. And that kind of insight can really open up a world of possibilities because sometimes you don't even have a competitor or you don't even know that you have a competitor because they're not a direct competitor or you don't perceive them as a direct competitor, but they actually are. And there's some kind of parallel with their service. 
this happens a lot with big companies and small companies is there's a lot of blind spots where people don't know where things are at a lot of overlap so I'm gonna leave it off there and hopefully somebody got some insight from that and I possibly will dig a little bit deeper because I think at some point I'll want to kind of revisit this subject just because it's very early stages for me I'm trying to roll it into my team and hopefully uh, I'll see some uh, somebody else out there that's rolling it into their team so I'll leave it at that. Have a good one.